Welcome to AI in the Wild, a weekly discovery show focused on helping professionals across industries apply AI technology in their organizations. I'm your guide, Mina Sleeb, and through focused interviews with founders, investors, and corporate executives, we distill complex AI technology down to basic business solutions. With that, let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Lloyd Danzig, chairman and founder of the International Consortium for the Ethical Development of Artificial Intelligence, also known as ICED AI, a nonprofit dedicated to ensuring that rapid developments in AI are made with a keen eye toward the long-term interests of humanity. Prior to ICED AI, Lloyd managed institutional portfolios for BlackRock, data science initiatives for Samsung, and machine learning engines for SimpleBet a sports betting startup powered by machine learning. Before we get into the show, I'd like to thank my friend Mike Nov for the kind introduction to Lloyd. This show would not be possible without him. With that, let's meet Lloyd. Lloyd, thank you very much for being here today. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's uh, our pleasure. You know, we've been trying to schedule this for a while. You know, finally got it done. Even though it's, it's summer, I, I would assume that, you know, you're off somewhere uh, vacationing on the beach it's kind of hot right now it, it, it is it is kind of hot and this weekend is supposed to be particularly unbearable yeah. <laughs> uh often my uh you know the travel needs are dictated more by what conferences are coming up rather than my whims but this right. particular weekend will be the first in quite a long time where i'm actually attempting to relax okay uh whether that actually happens remains to be seen and <laughs> i would assume is highly unlikely i am also trying to uh relax as well it probably will not happen either but you know uh, so is the life we chose, I guess. But with that, I would love to, uh, you know, kind of just get into your background. Right? You know, it said a, a couple of things in the introduction. You have a very interesting background. You know, you're starting this new group called Iced AI for short. Uh, but prior to that, you were in the, I guess, sports betting industry space. And then before kind of joining that, you were with BlackRock and you came from Wharton, right? That's uh, correct. Wharton studied economics. So I'd love to just, you know, how do you find your way here? Yeah, so as you said, I did my undergrad at Wharton, I studied economics and business law, and then did postgrad at Columbia uh, for computer science. Uh, in between those two is when I did my time in finance, uh, predominantly at BlackRock, obviously the world's largest asset manager. I think they have something like six and a half trillion with a T dollars in assets under management right now. Uh, and then at a smaller fixed income shop, I was a bond trader on the uh, corporate uh, investment grade desk. Uh, the time at Columbia was focused on this realization that although machine learning was not a big buzzword yet, in 2014, big data, data mining, predictive analytics started to infuse themselves into all the industries uh, and to really prepare myself for that. That's why I felt the need to layer on the computer science education. Cool. Uh, and when I was doing the, the data science initiatives uh, for Samsung were by way of Publicis, the, the ad agency that handles all of their marketing related data science. Uh, and that was a really eye-opening experience just in terms of 
how much data exists, who owns it, how it's brokered all over the internet, how profiles of you and I exist in marketers' databases and what those are based on. Uh, and then again, through real just luck of timing, in May of 2018, uh, a 1992 piece of legislation known as PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, was repealed by the Supreme Court, thereby allowing each individual state, in addition to Washington, D.C to decide if, how, and when to regulate sports betting. So it's a bit of a misnomer to say sports betting is legal in the U.S. It would be more accurate to say it is no longer federally illegal. Right. Uh, so people from overseas are very confused by this crazy fractured legislative and regulatory environment. Right. Um, New Jersey was the first sport outside of Nevada to legalize sports betting last year. Right. And in the month of May of this year, there were more sports betting dollars consumed in New Jersey than in Nevada for the first wow. time in history. Uh, New York uh, recently took their first legal sports bets, although uh, they are very restrictive. Uh, there are four brick and mortar casinos in upstate New York that will uh, have. So you have to betting. go there to so make you the have bet. to go. Okay. And the frustration, of course, is that keeping sports betting illegal is not preventing people from doing it. It's causing all the people in Manhattan to use their offshore bookies or go to New Jersey. Sure. And the problem is that it is thought that a mature sports betting market in New York would generate in excess of $100 million in tax revenue a wow. year for the state. And it's, it, it is just frustrating to be putting forth efforts that may or may not be accomplishing what legislators are hoping to accomplish right. and really are keeping something in a black market that would benefit from transparency and regulation. Right. So just to take a step back, when when was that law passed to, to allow states to so that, uh, so, start taking bets? Right. So it, it was actually a law that was repealed. It was repealed. a 1992 yeah. law that was repealed right. last May. Last and May. as soon as that happened, I started looking for opportunities in the space. Uh, and that is when I joined SimpleBet, which was a startup that is building, or at least trying to build, business-to-business uh, -business machine learning powered solutions for sports betting companies that want to come into the 21st century. Right. There are these companies, uh, operators is actually the term they use in the industry. In Europe, you may have heard of William Hill or um, Camby, these companies that have been making tons of money for decades, uh, but they have been powered generally by the industry standard, which is uh, stochastic simulation type predictive analytics. What's stochastic simulation? So uh, a Monte Carlo simulation would okay. be the main example that people are familiar with. And, and for any listeners who are unfamiliar, the example I give is if I asked you, what is the probability with which you could expect to roll a six-sided die and get a one? Right. Well, of course, you will know that is one-sixth. Right. But if you did not, you could roll that die 100,000 times, count up the frequencies, and say, since 100,000 is a large sample size, I am reasonably sure that this is predictive of the frequency with which it will occur in the future. I see. And believe it or not, for most of the history of sports betting, uh, as far as data and analytics are concerned, more robust versions of what I described are how odds are calculated. Mm -hmm. Games or quarters or halves or seasons are simulated. 
and then the frequencies are converted into odds and then a little bit of a house edge is added right. for profitability uh, and that has pretty much been the industry standard and that, that is currently undergoing a revolution. And that's typically the, the math casinos are working with when they're building. So you know, generally, yes, it is actually the case that a lot of them just rip off the odds from other operators. <laughs> there are a few people or a few uh, institutions. Bet365 in Europe is the largest one. Their CEO made $240 million last year, huge company. And there are a lot of operators who wait until Bet365 publishes their odds uh, and then will copy or slightly modify. Exactly. That makes sense. All right. So what you're talking about is, is game theory, basically. Yes. Okay. I see. Very cool. So you study economics. You saw basically how much data is being created, right, during your time at Samsung. Crazy, crazy enough that I think the last stat that was out was about 2.5 quintillion bytes um, of data are created every day. That's a lot. Yes. Right. So I think that's just that. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And I guess is that was that the thing that really got you interested in machine learning? Was it so, the data that was being created? How did you make that jump into machine learning, caring about artificial intelligence and its applications? Sure, great, great question. So from a business perspective, uh, my time in the sports betting space is what opened my eyes to some of the incredible use cases for machine learning uh, in, in a specific niche industry. Uh, but combining those realizations with the understanding of how much data exists, uh, how little people understand about the data that is collected uh, regarding their behaviors, uh, and just, you know, I spend all my time reading and watching TED Talks and listening to podcasts and such. Sure. Uh, it made me aware of some of these really interesting ethical dilemmas that are almost emergent properties of developing AI. Mm -hmm. And the classic example that people will hear or talk about is sort of a modern incarnation of the classic trolley problem from philosophy. Right. And the way that goes is, suppose a sophisticated autonomous vehicle detects that an accident is imminent and it is given two choices. It can make one maneuver that will save the passenger but kill a pedestrian or another maneuver that will save the pedestrian but kill the passenger, right. which should it do? And whichever one you're tempted to answer, I could say, okay, what if it was two of the other? What if it was 10? What if right. it was a pregnant woman? All of those things. Right, right. Uh, but it, gets, it goes much beyond that and gets both more complicated and nefarious. Mm. Uh, so the way that a, an autonomous vehicle works is, among other things, it has a camera that is constantly scanning its environment and it says, oh, there's an eight-sided sign with mostly red pixels and white letters, let's engage the brakes. Right. Of course, it does not understand what a stop sign is, it just recognizes certain patterns that are indicative of a stop sign. Right. So using very sophisticated mathematics there are people with relatively minimal resources who can create a stop sign that is indistinguishable to you or I from a regular stop sign, but that an autonomous vehicle would read as a yield sign or an 80 mile an hour sign. Yeah. And that's some real next level dystopian warfare right. kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and so what this prompted me to do is you know, in addition to, you know, I, I went off on my own, I, I do consulting for sports betting companies that want to integrate machine learning into their tech stacks. I also have my nonprofit that is dedicated to raising awareness of all these issues 
because there is an intuition that even some of the smartest AI researchers in the world are working on implementations without being aware of some of these dilemmas. The consequence. And yeah. it is a very unique phenomenon where AI exponentiates this notion that you can create a problem as an AI researcher and not realize you created it until it is you know, too late, so to speak. So we do not try to say, to use that autonomous vehicle example, that companies should always favor the passenger or should always favor the pedestrian. Rather, our enormously steep task right now is just making sure that the people working on autonomous vehicles are aware that this dilemma is existing, have some sort of impartial advisory board to make the decisions, emergency backup plans and things like that. So although it is, of course, a software focused company, uh, the initiatives are, are more focused around process and oriented around making sure that processes are in place to escalate, de-escalate issues and just generally wait, raise the awareness and cognizance. Very cool. Let's get back to, I guess, your, your gaming expertise. I find it to be a very interesting niche industry. In not necessarily industry, I think a lot of people are, uh, you know, active in the space, but the application of machine learning in the space. Can you give us some insight into what actual applications look like in sure. the space, how it's being applied? When I think of machine learning uh, in the space, I think of somebody sitting at a blackjack table, you know, using NLP or like, you know, computer vision to like count cards or something. So that is funny. I've always thought that a great Google Glass app would be a card counting <laughs> exactly. augmented reality app. That would be fantastic. <laughs> but that aside, so the way I see it, there are five key use cases for machine learning uh, in sports betting. Uh, I'll list them quickly and, sure. and then I'll go into each. So one or two that will be somewhat obvious, at least to anyone in the space, are the process of odds making and then risk management. So those are two that are somewhat intuitive. Uh, the other three have to do with something called responsible gaming, uh, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, fraud detection, and then the use of recommendation systems similar to Netflix uh, in the sports betting space. Mm. So for odds making, uh, it should come as no surprise that having sophisticated predictive capabilities would benefit someone who is setting odds on sporting outcomes. Uh, but it, that really only scratches the surface. Uh, I was very intellectually disappointed when I found out that most of these sports betting companies use one model to generate the odds before the match starts, known as pre-match, and a different model to update those odds in real time, which is known as in-play. And that is because they want to use the most sophisticated, robust possible model when time allows, but in between timeouts or possessions, you need to, if your model is not very efficient and you don't have the benefit of things like training, which you can do with machine learning, uh, you have to run this much more pruned down model. And that often leads to inconsistent odds, or at the very least, it leads to the operators baking in additional, what you might call risk premiums for themselves to compensate for the potential for things like asymmetric information. And that means all the customers on both sides are worse off because the operator needs to deal with that uncertainty. So of course, things like 
machine learning's enhanced ability to detect nonlinear relationships is very helpful. Uh, but in addition, the ability to train your models and do a lot of pre-processing, which is not specific to machine learning, but generally is associated with it, means that come runtime, you can run a much more robust model. And therefore, you can calculate the odds before the match by using a model that takes as parameters zero points scored, zero minutes elapsed, zero timeouts, and just increment them as necessary. Mm. And that sort of segues into the risk management aspect. So is that they want to set odds that have implied probabilities that correspond to the prevailing sentiment about right. what uh, the true probability is, right. because sports books want to operate in riskless fashion. The standard way the math works is you have to bet $110 to win 100. So if you and I both bet $110 to win 100 on opposite sides of an event with binary outcome, one of us would win 100, one of us would lose 110, and the sports book would have $10 of riskless profit left over. So risk management is often the process of balancing the amount of bets or the dollar number of bets on each side. And that is typically but not done based on what what is perceived to happen, what, what is, what's the sentiment what of is the, the public, sentiment? Exactly. What, what they're most likely to actually bet on. Precisely. And, and the example for any sports fans listening, uh, the Super Bowl this past year opened up, it was generally thought to be what is called pick'em, which is where it's an even money on either side. If anything, the Patriots were thought to be slight underdogs. And what all of the operators in the world did not count on is how much people wanted to bet on the Patriots and Tom Brady. And they kept trying to make it less and less favorable, the odds for betting on the Patriots. And right. even come kickoff, about 80% of the wagers were on the Patriots. So risk management in the context of a sports betting company generally refers to this process of changing the odds to make them more or less favorable in the directions to which you are over or underexposed. Mm. And of course, uncertainty is the bane of existence of anyone in risk management, and that is especially the case in sports betting. So with less robust risk management capabilities, with lesser abilities to predict how certain odds movements will affect supply and demand, you often see things like, for example, in the last few minutes of most sporting events, you cannot wager on them because there is so much variability. Right. New information that comes out, injuries, things like this will cause these betting markets to be suspended. And before I mentioned the example, we both wager $110 and the sports book makes a $10 profit. That's about a 4.5% profit margin, which is pretty low. So it's a volume game. They want to have the most dollars coming in possible. And every minute that they spend not taking bets is essentially opportunity cost that is lost. Mm -hmm. In addition, what any of your listeners who have spent time on a trading desk will maybe explode when they hear, it is totally standard practice to try to place a live bet during a game. And you commit your money, you, how much you risk, and then you're shown a sort of loading icon. And at that time, for maybe four or five, eight seconds, the operator can choose to reject, partially fill, or completely fill your order, and you have no way to revoke it. And that would never fly in financial services, but that is standard practice, as is banning users from platforms simply for being too good. That is totally standard practice. Some people try to shy away from admitting it, but FanDuel, DraftKings, William Hill, they all do it. And 
it is really a bit silly because with sufficient predictive analytics and just generally more robust analytical frameworks, not only could they have more dollars coming in the door, but the customer experience could be much better because if you think, oh, I really want to make sure I bet on the Yankees going into the ninth inning and you're unable to do so, that's a bad customer experience. And the cost of acquiring a customer, uh, that being someone who actually makes a deposit, right now in the US sports betting market is between seven to $900. Right. And it is incredible to me that these operators don't do what is necessary to retain their customers. They say, oh, the lifetime value is X and that is greater than the cost of customer acquisition, but lifetime value doesn't mean anything if you don't extract cash from that user for the duration of that lifetime. Right. So just generally being able to deal with more data and process it faster makes risk management much better and easier both for the operator and it benefits the the user. Interesting. So what I'm getting is you're you're basically betting on the fact that if you help these enterprises, these casinos, these betting books, uh, all all these all these organizations kind of maximize their algorithms, right? And, and be able to use, use machine learning to probably train this data. They can basically, I guess, adapt their lines on the fly in order to take more bets, increase profits, allow all users to bet at any time. That is exactly right. And it's sort of a rising tide lifts all ships mentality, not only for the sports betting industry, but the sports entertainment industry at large. Right. Um, the amount of value in terms of engagement that sports betting drives to the sports that quickly and immediately translates to advertising dollars and all sorts of other revenue is astronomical. And we have the ability to have a nice harmonious symbiotic relationship where sports betting feeds engagement to the underlying sports that drives more fans to bet, etc. Right. But it doesn't necessarily have to go that way, which is where some of these other use cases come in. So responsible gaming is an industry term that anyone in Europe will be familiar with, which refers to the mechanisms by which operators seek to aid customers in avoiding the adverse consequences or potential adverse consequences of gambling. Now, what that manifests as is if you download any sports betting app uh, and you go to the responsible gaming tab, you'll be given three options, sort of self-imposed restrictions. You can limit how many dollars you deposit into your account over any period of time. You can limit how many dollars you lose over any period of time, and also the hours of the day during which you're able to do these things, and you can set your cooling off period and things like that. Now, that's great, but that really only refers to and services a specific subset of the population that would self-impose restrictions in the first place. And especially as the nature of addiction can be, many people are not going to do that. Right. So one of the things I try to do when, when I speak at conferences is replace the term responsible gaming with sustainable gaming. Because with advanced analytics and especially machine learning, you don't only have to be reactive, you can be proactive. For example, if a specific customer bets $10 every single wager with a zero standard deviation, and then at 3 a.m. one night, they lose a bet, double it, lose another one and double it, you can rest assured that is not responsible gaming as they would see it. And of course, there are far more complicated patterns that would 
represent irresponsible gaming. And I think right now a lot of the operators hear this term and they say, you mean I have to deploy resources to limit my short-term profitability? Right. But that's a very narrow-minded view. If we can get people to, through the lens of machine learning and pattern recognition, view it as sustainable gaming, helping ensure that you have customers that are happy, if not profit maximizing for you for the long term, will benefit everyone. And healthy. And healthy, exactly. Right. And on a similar note, the fourth use case is fraud detection. So in Europe, again, this is something that is common, but uh, things like detecting whether bets are coming from a syndicate or that people are betting on behalf of other people. I mentioned before that it is commonplace to ban what are known as sharp bettors, the equivalent of smart money on Wall Street. Uh, you might not be surprised to hear that they try to sign up under their wife's name or spread their bets over six of their friends at different sports books. And pattern recognition would do a great job at detecting these things. And as an ancillary benefit, you know, these five use cases are primarily focused at operators and consumers, but a major concern is we want to make sure that sports betting doesn't not in any way taint the integrity of the underlying competitive sports leagues. So the NBA is actually high. They are the most progressive of the four American leagues. Yeah. They are hiring in their investigations and integrity department a data scientist right now who will algorithmically verify that aberrant betting behavior is not in any way related to match fixing or things like that. FIFA and CONCACAF do that, yeah. uh, but we need to do that in the U.S. as well. And then finally, uh, the fifth uh, use case is, you know, concerns recommendation systems. So just as uh, Netflix uses artificial neural networks to tell you what show to watch next so that you keep binging whatever it is that you're watching, and even when you finish one series, you move to another, uh, sports betting operators can do that in also in a way that supports this rising tide lifts all ship mentality. So the example that I'll give, which we'll pull from some of the things we've just spoken about, is suppose uh, there's a Yankees game tonight and a sports book feels they are underexposed to the Yankees. Well, the conventional option would be make the odds on the Yankees more favorable mm -hmm. so that people will wager on them. Uh, but what is very common in the sports betting industry is promotions and bonuses. If you log on to FanDuel or DraftKings right now, you'll be prompted, bet now and get a 10% refund if you lose, things like that. So rather than arbitrarily or just uniformly promoting the same refunds to everyone, if you have a few customers that you know particularly like betting on the Yankees, well, you should tell them that you'll give them a 15% refund on a Yankees bet made in the next 20 minutes. And that is the kind of thing that it, it, it makes their experience better. It benefits the rest of the users because it allows the operator to manage risk without changing the lines. Uh, and it's just another use case for machine learning and pattern recognition and sophisticated predictive analytics overall uh, that enhances not only profitability for the operator, uh, but the, the customer experience and therefore hopefully user retention. So those would be the five main ones, odds making, risk management, uh, responsible slash sustainable gaming, uh, fraud detection and bet recommendations. There is a nearly infinite multitude of other use cases, but these are what most of the operators are going to be busy with for the next three to five years. Wow, that was <laughs> that was great. It's cool because I I haven't done much 
I haven't seen many applications in the space, um, so very cool to see the the breadth and depth of the the applications and how how different variations of AI can be applied to this. Seems like you know this pretty well. You've been in the space for a little bit of time. I think your economics background kind of helps you grasp a lot of these concepts. And then obviously you've done your your research and your your work in this space. Why not stay in the space? Why don't why not be an expert in this and you know build up your uh, your cachet in the space? Why are you why are you doing iced? Yeah. So I you know I, I think you know. The greater social good, especially if you hear from people like Nick Bostrom or Elon Musk, who talk about the existential threat of you know apocalyptic AI, right. uh, is immense. But uh, I do also have a consulting company, uh, Edge ML Solutions, uh, through which I help sports betting companies integrate machine learning into their tech stacks navigate this crazy fractured legislative and regulatory environment in the US. Uh, and so I, I absolutely do that. And, and the reason is, first of all, because I enjoy it. And second of all, because it is profitable. But beyond that, I am a huge sports fan. You know, all of my best memories with my dad growing up are at Yankee games. All of my greatest memories with my friends are somehow involved in, in sports. And it is really important to me personally absent of any professional success to see that sports betting enhances the larger sports industry rather than in any way compromising it and as someone who is a data and tech person i see machine learning as being the perfect way to do that and it's just very fortuitous timing that this sort of newest incarnation of the ai revolution coincides with the inflection point that the sports betting industry is at. Right. So what is your vision for ICE? You know, organizations, nonprofits like AI Now that is uh, fighting uh, bias in artificial intelligence um, and just bias in general. Uh, obviously, we, we, we know a lot of the social implications about artificial intelligence. It's, I think at this point now, well talked about. What is your goal with the organization that, that you're starting? Sure. Um, I guess what, what's going to be your focus? What's going to be your differentiator? Sure. So in order to be a nonprofit in the U.S. as categorized by the IRS, you have to fit certain accounting criteria. Uh, but in general, you have to have a corporate charter that is intended to benefit either the general public, a specific set of individuals, or the members of your organization. Some people do all three of those, some do only one. Right now, we're focused on the second and third, specific set of individuals and members of our organization. So uh, I speak at a lot of AI conferences and educate people who are doing all sorts of awesome projects on some of these ethical pitfalls. Uh, and also, you know, the members of my organization who are at the forefront of AI, not only in the US, but around the world in all different industries, uh, you know, we share knowledge and thought leadership and resources with one another. And, you know, everyone pretty no much knows if there's a really complicated question, someone within our organization will be able to solve it. And to sort of add to that, we're soon going to be launching uh, both a newsletter and an internal database uh, that is really a curated view of current AI events and what is going on. Uh, however, the, the larger goal, and I would love it if my organization was the sole proprietor of this or if I simply helped facilitate it, which would benefit the general public, uh, would be to essentially establish 
what would be the equivalent of the Better Business Bureau, but for AI deployment. Uh, right now, you know, people have no way of knowing uh, what the companies from which they buy products are using their data for or artificial intelligence for. And what we would love to do is have essentially a process auditing system in place where we go into companies and to go back to the autonomous vehicle example, uh, if we went into Tesla and they said, Lloyd, we want you to certify us as being ethically compliant in our de deployment of AI. That determination would not be made by do you save the passenger or do you save the pedestrian, but rather, do you have processes in place? Do you have emergency backstops? Do you have an impartial board that is making these decisions whose interests are not financially tied to the bottom line of the company and things like that? And what my vision and, and goal would be that, that would benefit the public at large would be for there to be an easy stamp of approval or certificate that consumers can look to and say, before I buy this product, since I know that there's voice recognition involved, which may use AI, I'm only going to buy it if there's a stamp of approval. Uh, and the way I would love to structure that it, to really align everyone's incentives is suppose we charge $100 to go into a company and do an audit. The more, quote, ethically compliant they were or the more process oriented they were surrounding AI, the more of that $100 we would refund to them. So all of our interests are aligned. It's a nonprofit organization. We really just want to make sure that the companies that have all this data and processing power uh, are using it responsibly. And then the last thing I would just say is in the meantime, I think the intermediary step concerns transparency. So a few weeks ago, uh, months, I think this was mid-April, reports started coming out that Amazon employees were listening to Alexa conversations. Yeah. And no one in the machine learning community was surprised by that because how else would you continue to refine your voice recognition system? Right. But the point, the problem is that the machine learning community and the people for whom that is second nature is a very tiny fraction of people buying Echo Dots for $39.99 on Prime Day. And what I would love to advocate for in the meantime is a more robust transparency where companies that are deploying things like this, where maybe if you're in the engineering community, you assume someone is listening or watching, uh, where, where they have to, or at least it becomes a standard best practice uh, to simply be more transparent and forthcoming about that. Right, I like that. I had a bunch of conversations of who, whose responsibility is it to kind of safeguard the public uh, when it comes to AI applications and just decision making across corporations that affect uh, the public at, at large, and I, I still don't think we found that answer. I don't, I don't think the government is really prepared to be those those decision makers, um, and I don't think the the incentives and are aligned for corporations to do what's best for the public, especially at all times, right? Like definitely not at all times, and I don't think most of the time that their incentives line up. Um, so at some point, something has to give. I think what you're talking about could be a potential answer to this or one of the answers that we can rely on. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, what are you excited about in the space? Um, yeah, sure. So I think what I'm excited about is also what I'm scared about, which is the fact that all of these AI implementations that have 
you know, the potential for exploitation by malicious actors also have incredible upside. You know, being able to determine whether a tumor is benign or malignant without doing invasive surgery, that is an incredibly useful process that not only cuts down on recovery time, but saves money and helps doctors see more patients and all of that great stuff. So, you know, I think one of the reasons that the job is so hard is that if it were easy to just out of hand dismiss all of these technologies as only having negative externalities, then that would make this much easier. The problem is that there are so many incredible use cases that will benefit people's health, will make it their lives easier, whether that's in their professional lives, their personal lives, their social lives, and things like that. Uh, so I would say that I think the applications in healthcare are very, very exciting, uh, just from a diagnostic perspective. Being able to cut down on doctors' time spent servicing patients, but increase the accuracy with which they diagnose and then administer medication and, and therapeutic plans. If that's not a noble application of AI, I don't know what is. Yeah. Uh, and then also, I, I think just generally, you know, what, what is similarly exciting and scary are some of what I've heard called no-code or low-code environments. And the one that comes to mind is the Microsoft Azure Machine Learning Studio. It's 12 months for free, you drag your CSV file in, you draw an arrow from it to a two-class boosted decision tree and you press play. And Of course, you have to know about statistics and computer science a bit, but you don't need to write any code to train machine learning algorithms. Right. And that's great because it used to be in kind of still is the case that unless you've had the privilege of a sophisticated education in engineering and computer science, there is no way that you could take advantage of modern technological development. So I am so thrilled that now I go to some non-tech conferences, you know, business analytics, which of course has a technical aspect, but nothing to do with, you know, writing C++ or training neural networks in Python. And people who otherwise would not have access to this sort of privileged uh, type of technology are now going to have access. However, as I was saying, the other side of that coin is if you, the collective you, have fears that people who are AI experts might create problems when, like you mentioned, perhaps train an algorithm on biased data that is certainly going to be made worse by people who are not AI experts. Right. And the old phrase is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You take bad data and you're going to get results that statistically seem to indicate a high level of certainty or significance or whatever your metrics are. But in reality, if you only train a facial recognition system on men and try to apply it to women or on one race and try to apply it to another, uh, you're bound to run up against issues. So the answer to your question is I'm so excited about these use cases in healthcare, uh, in financial services, in sports betting that, that will benefit everyone. But I am equally scared because I think their admittedly and justifiably noble reputations are what could mask people's also justified fear in what happens when malicious actors come into the fray. Yeah. All very valid, I think. Again, I, I think a lot of these, uh, we'll, we'll get a lot more answers when it becomes more clear of whose responsibility is to even find those answers. Um, I think for now, it's, it's all of our responsibilities. It's our responsibility um, to keep talking about 
both the positive and negative consequences of these technologies, especially for the people um, that are not necessarily uh, well informed, they're, they're not part of the decisions, they're not actively participating in the building of these technologies on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's, it's on us to kind of both be their voice and also kind of like help them know what, what's really coming. I just want to highlight something that you've mentioned and touched upon a few different times now. And I just really want to emphasize for just anyone listening now or in the future, and that's this notion of aligned or misaligned incentives. Yeah. That's not at all specific to AI. Of course, that is everything. You know, you learn about moral hazard and things in economics, but now more than ever, it is so essential to ensure that the interests of the proper parties are aligned. And as you were referring to, yes, Perhaps Google, Facebook, and Twitter are huge concentrations of both IQ and actual computer processing power, yeah. but we should not trust them to police themselves. If they want to have an internal AI review board, great, but there needs to be something impartial because like you said, the biggest concern about Facebook policing themselves is not an indictment on anyone specifically, but simply the nature of the way aligned and misaligned incentives end up rippling through the ecosphere. Well, also, since when did we expect that from business people, right? In general, right? Like, I think we're also redefining what the expectations are of business, especially, you know, for a public company, their job is not to do what's best for society. Their job is to do what's best for their shareholders, ultimately, whether we like it or not. Like, that's basically the bottom line. So we can hold them at a high standard. And if we want to redefine that for everyone and all of society and all businesses and all public organizations, then fine. But at the end of the day, nobody's holding a gun to our head saying you have to use these platforms, right? If you want to stop using these platforms and you think they're negative, then just stop. You're, you're absolutely right. I could not agree more. And without starting an entirely separate tangent, my, my feelings on that are because it, it couples or dovetails perfectly with the notion of alignment or misalignment of incentives. I totally understand that people look at Mark Zuckerberg and say, you're young and you have all this money, you shouldn't have this power or you should be benefiting the public more and all that. And however, everyone is better off if the savviest tech minds in the world are incentivized to create new technologies. You look at Elon Musk and whether you support him tweeting funding secured or not, the reality is he has put forth technologies that are making the world a better place. You can't hate on his engineering abilities, no matter what you think of him as a person. And he could have retired to a private island for the rest of his life after the PayPal sale. He didn't have to risk it all to start Tesla and then risk it all again to keep Tesla going and then start Neuralink and SpaceX. And if it becomes the status quo that companies have this dual mandate to not only serve shareholders, but also focus on whatever term you want to apply to what you're talking about. Again, I understand the emotional appeal to that, but the reality is that the result is less tech innovation and stifled creativity and investment that ultimately detriments everyone. So right. I, I agree with you 100%, but it is tricky. Who should decide who an autonomous vehicle favors. Right. Philosophers, computer scientists, politicians. I don't know the answer. It's, it's tough. No, I, I personally think the answer is if we're going to kind of 
hold um, corporations to a higher standard, we need to be holding government to a higher standard. And if Could they want to regulate more. it, then then regulate it. Like Europe did that with GDPR. Like they they took a um, a pretty strong stance on it. They mandated it. They brought it to fruition. Um, we're obviously just not doing that um, in the U.S. And you know, and we're we're expecting companies to do that. But again, it is just literally going against business economics for them to make that a priority over you know, their, their bottom line. Right. I could not agree with you more. And on the note of GDPR, uh, for anyone who has not traveled to Europe or logged into a VPN from a European IP address since GDPR was enacted, I would highly recommend that they do because the wet, GDPR is not just a random acronym and arbitrary piece of legislation. The entire web browsing experience in Europe is much different than it used to be. Every website you go to, a huge interstitial or full page takeover comes and says, are you sure you're okay accepting cookies and with us collecting your data? It's yeah. similar to the way a lot of cigarette packs now have these really graphic images of, of people with black lungs. Uh, and so I agree with you 100%. I think the thing, I, I've agreed with most of what you've said or pretty much all of it, but the thing I feel most strongly about is how you tied in, you're absolutely right. If, if you're going to change what it means to be a corporation, then we do need to have the government somehow held accountable as well. Yeah, and I, I think the the last thing is, I'm, I'm completely fine with uh, holding individuals to a higher standard, but again, the individual versus the corporate. I understand when people look at, you know, billionaires, even multimillionaires, millionaires in general, like, I get it. Like, you want them to do better for society. You want them to give back to society. I completely get that, right? Like, I, I, I personally would hope that um, we're all doing what we can for our fellow human that, are, you know, are not as well off or not as blessed. And I'm completely there. I just, I would separate the individual from the corporation. The main takeaway that I would hope people get from this podcast, aside from anything specific, is that aligning incentives with the yeah. proper goals is really what our generation needs to make sure not to mess up. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think we went off on a couple of changes, yeah. but, I, but I, I, I enjoyed it. Right? As did I, I. It's no problem. Uh, that's, uh, that's why we have the forum. Real quick, what's, the, what's your favorite business resources? Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, again, obviously, depending what business you're in and, and what level of sophistication you're at, you know, Khan Academy, Coursera, all fantastic. Uh, if you're trying to enhance your machine learning and mathematical knowledge in this space, and especially if you are a visual learner, if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel, Three Blue, One Brown, especially their course on linear algebra and neural networks, but also the essence of calculus and everything else, it is an incredibly elucidating experience. I took linear algebra at Columbia and I still felt like the 30 minutes I spent on Three Blue, nice. One Brown, not to not Columbia, a great institution. Uh, the visual aspect to these videos uh, is phenomenal. Nice. But I really think, and maybe this is a non-answer, I don't know, the best thing you can do, which is becoming quite a lost art in the days of social media, is meeting someone in person and not to get money out of it or a job or right. anything specific. Finding someone who's doing something interesting and saying, hey, I, would I have some feedback on what you did. I would also love to ask you some questions. Can I treat you to coffee tomorrow? Right. And especially in the tech space with this whole open source mentality, which extends far beyond just open source code, 
anyone who is an intellectually curious person should be glad to do that. And there is no possible way to learn more than to talk to someone and get an authentic, unadulterated, unbiased view of how they are applying whatever skill set it is that you're interested in in a current industry. What's your favorite newsletter? Um, so I really, I love the 538 newsletter that gets sent out every morning just as like, as a math guy and, and, you know, uh, he's become a bit tongue in cheek and sarcastic with some of his comments now, but just in general, I I love seeing, uh, you know, a a few newsletters like that. Something that I'll say that I know if any of my friends listen to this, they'll laugh at Reddit is really a phenomenal resource if you know how to use it efficiently. The artificial intelligence subreddit that's just r slash artificial has some amazing current events and the sort of democratized upvote downvote system where whether you're a random person or Kim Kardashian, your vote matters the same and there's no such thing as an influencer is this nice democratized way to automatically curate uh, the value of different stories. And of course, you should read the comments and everything like that. But but I really have found that subscribing to the right subreddits, and of course, it is easy to get off track with memes and all sorts of time wasters. But it really is an interesting way to see not only what the stories are and who's upvoting those stories, but what are people commenting? And then you can look at those users' comment histories and you can make the connections. Oh, I see. Someone who often associates with this political ideology also associates with this artificial intelligence viewpoint. Um, And, you know, again, Reddit is an easy way to waste a full day or a full week, but it also can be a productive resource. Um, But yeah, lots of great resources out there. And uh, I I love that you always ask the question because uh, I think it's, it's awesome to spread knowledge among industry participants about where people get their news and their current events. Yeah, I, I ask it because I think a lot of the listeners want to get more educated on the subject. And a lot of the guests on here, you know, have started the companies they started or um, the organizations because they've educated themselves on, on specific subjects. So who better to ask than the, the people we're bringing on? And I, I think the last thing, um, anything that the community can be helpful with? If so, where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, you know, you can look me up on LinkedIn, uh, icedai.com is our website. Uh, anyone is absolutely welcome. You, if you want to put this in the show notes, Lloyd at icedai is my email address. Uh, it's a two-way street just as much as I have benefited from people sitting down with me that I learned from. I am always happy if someone is genuinely interested in learning and helping and has something to offer. And sometimes you can offer just by asking the right questions. You don't have to contribute knowledge. Asking good questions can, can be very helpful. So anyone who's listening who is interested in furthering the discussion on the ethics of AI and raising awareness uh, to any extent that I myself, my organization, or my broader network can help facilitate that, always happy to talk to people, whether it's LinkedIn, email, meeting for coffee or, or, or lunch. Uh, And I think that I understand, especially these days, there is a natural hesitance to sort of cold call or whatever you would call a cold call on LinkedIn. Uh, But I do think that especially in the tech space, the people that you want to talk to should be the people who are answering these requests anyway. And if someone is going to blow you off because of whatever reason, then maybe it's not the type of person. So absolutely anyone is welcome to to reach out via email, LinkedIn, uh, our website happy to sit down and, and whether it's helped someone just 
think through a business idea, help with a, a step in their career. If I can't answer the questions, I'm sure someone within the network or within my organization can. Always happy to make connections. Awesome. And I, I personally, uh, I will vouch for that. I think, uh, you know, since we got connected, you've been very helpful, um, you know, where, when you didn't necessarily even have to be. So um, I do appreciate that. I, do, I know that's actually a genuine give out there. So uh, I'm sure people will take you up on it. Great. Um, and uh, with that, I want to thank you for coming through today. I want to thank uh, our mutual friend, Mike Nov, for introducing us and uh, looking forward to seeing what you build, man. Uh, right, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us in the wild this week. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or however you listen. Catch you next week. And as always, stay blessed, my friends.